This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this evening. Got a great stream with a great guest. I think you guys are really going to enjoy. I'm sure most of you who are watching the channel here are already aware, but if you don't know, The Distributist is an excellent YouTuber, one of the old school guys around here. You should definitely check out everything he does. He's got a Substack, he's got a channel, he's got a couple other things I'll let him plug here in a second. But Dave, thank you so much for joining me, man. I think you got the uh, the mute on there, Dave. Sorry about that. Yeah, the, the, pretty much the only thing I don't have is time enough to update all of those things. So yeah, yeah. yeah feel free to check me out. I do usually a weekly podcast, kind of not happening this week because of Christmas stuff, but I'll be back in the new year. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. Absolutely, man. Really appreciate it. So the thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about there's a lot going on. I think uh, more and more people are kind of aware of the shifts that are happening on the right, the attitudes with, you know, kind of the Republican uh, mainstays, the usual approach, people are looking for different answers, and they're going different places. A lot of them are landing in, you know, channels like yours or mine. And I think a lot of people want to understand kind of what's going on, because there's a lot of contests a lot of people challenging hey who should be a part of a movement who should be able to talk to who who should be engaging with someone is someone a bad influence all that kind of thing we've got a couple of different uh, dust-ups that have happened on, on the internet over the last yeah. you know few weeks we had the rob Dreher, uh with with uh, charles haywood and then we kind of had uh, uh jordan peterson coming out against anons we had a lot of people kind of pushing back against people who might generally land in our sphere. And you did a, a really good thread that I think kind of speaks to some of this. So so yeah, maybe well, you want to open up with that a little bit. Well, actually, I'll, I would like to talk a little bit more, I think, about sort of the problem first. Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the thing is, is the right has sort of an issue. And I think you see this with the Jordan Peterson. I don't know. Do, are we calling it a collapse right now? Because the guy seems to have fallen off the deep end his appeals kind of draining away. I don't know really what the audience is. Well, I shouldn't say that I do know what the audience for Peterson is. And the audience he's trying to build is conservatism. 
Charles Haywood had this name for it. He called it scrutinism, named after Roger Scruton. Roger Scruton was a genius, and he had this really raw, primal, poetic energy. But his sort of demeanor, his, his, short, his sort of intelligent way of doing fusionism is dead, and you, you can't repeat it. And there's no way that these people like Peterson can portray themselves as anything other than just tragic figures destined to lose. These, you know, Peterson has seemingly no idea what time it is. He doesn't understand the political dynamics he's dealing with. And so all he can do is just sort of be perpetually outraged and spin off this kind of performative verbiage that this communicates this profound sense of weakness. I don't know. I don't really know who's on the, in the market for this stuff. And I think this kind of creates a crisis on the right because the, the people who I think people were looking to to organize something new and different are just sort of outright failing. And, and it all sort of centers around this issue with determining friend versus enemy. Now, this is something that's very much abused, right? Schmidt said politics is fundamentally friend-enemy, by which I think he meant that politics on a long enough time period devolves into friend-enemy. People organize their political identities around that distinction, and that's what drives it. But, you know, you can't just say politics is friend-enemy. I hate you, therefore you're my political enemy. That's a sort of like a boneheaded way to go about doing things. And, and you know, there, there's also this... This other way I think people are discovering right now is uh, we can't do what the left does. So for the last, well, basically since the 60s, at least, and probably even before that, the, the American left has had this process by which it defines good and evil by how how close you are, how much you advocate for moral degeneration or just general amorality, uh, kind of like antinomian behavior generally. And then it defines friend enemy that way and it just plays politics straight up the right can't do that the right is not trying to just degenerate everything into a political game the right's trying to depoliticize things and it's trying to create things that are actually lasting and solid and that you can trust and because of that the 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 question of of determining friend and enemy is more complicated it's not just who's on side it's not just oh or is he spouting the proper political platitudes. Is he, is he pure enough? Uh, you know, that kind of leads you to this whole 4chan attitude, whereas if you're not constantly talking like Kanye West, you're an enemy. So, I mean, this kind of opens up this interesting dynamic. And I think the only thing people really have determined so far is that the current leaders, and I'm very much thinking of people like Rod Dreher and Jordan Peterson, have completely failed in their attempt to deal with politics as it actually occurs in the 21st century. And, you know, I guess it's a starting point. Uh, what are your thoughts? Maybe I should ask that. No, yeah, I, I, I think that's probably true. I mean, it's very difficult to watch someone like Peterson kind of fall into this. I, I wonder, do you think, because, you know, he's someone who for so many people kind of opened up a lot of things and helped them through difficult times and did have an impact on people in a positive direction, maybe in even in a, more, I guess you could call it right-leaning direction, but for us, I think we would just call it, you know, a healthy direction. But at the same time, do you think he's aware of what he's doing when he's reconstructing scrutinism or trying? Like, does do you think he understands that this is a failed project, or do you think that he was just completely unfamiliar with kind of this tradition beforehand and feels like he's got to kind of create it out of whole cloth and isn't really 
you know, doesn't have the context to understand where he is in the moment. Well, I think, I think that, I think people mistake it. Jordan Peterson had kind of a hint of the old world about him, and he had kind mm-hmm. of, a, of a, I mean, basically in his pre-breakdown years, he had a sort of vitality about him where it was clear that he was going to stand his ground. And that kind of gave him, what I want to say is it kind of gave him a wisdom that he couldn't ideologically justify in himself. Uh, you know, Jordan Peterson had completely swallowed the liberal story about how politics works. And to my knowledge, he's never addressed that. He, he doesn't, he, he still thinks that there's, you know, it would be worth it to ask him why he thought previous iterations of conservatism failed. But he, he still thinks that that progressives are going to come around. There's going to be a great moderation. Uh, there, there's going to be some kind of way that you can uh, create a, an ideological movement to the right in the same way that the left has ideological ways to the left. I, I guess, you know, to my knowledge, he just hasn't asked the right questions or he was ne- never really in a mind frame to really question the preconceptions about the world that was presented to him in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and that he built his academic career around. And so he's sort of wielding these instincts that are fundamentally more wise than he is, or, or has a right to be, I should say. And yeah, that's kind of my, that's my take on Peterson. I guess the only question is, why are people still listening? Well, like I said, I think a lot of people feel like they kind of owe something to Peterson. He opened things up for a lot of people. He was seen, you know, as a thought leader for a time. And so I think there's a lot of momentum to, you know, for the people who think that, you know, the institutions that think that he is going to kind of open things up for people or is going to be a force to be reckoned with long term. I think it takes a while to kind of burn that credibility down. And while I think it may be easier for some of us in this sphere to kind of spot that the momentum is dying down. I think for the mainstream, it still looks like he's got gas in the tank, right? He's still an intelligent guy. He's still exploring things that a lot of people hadn't thought about. I like the way that you kind of phrase that, that he's carrying a wisdom that otherwise maybe hadn't earned or, or wouldn't otherwise apply. And so that's still captivating <coughs> to people in a way, right? I'm sure he's earned it in his own life by mm. raising a family, uh, you know, being be, instructing young men, uh, caring for principles, standing his ground. You know, in that way, he's earned it. But there's there's no ideological justification for it. it. It not to try to use another tired analogy, but I always I always think of this as sort of like the Picard principle. Like you know, Picard is this uh, man of the, from Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah. He's this man of the old world. He, he is this, this spinning image of this imperialistic French or, or English uh, leader gentleman. And, and he comports himself as such. And he reads Moby Dick in his spare time and whatnot. And, but there's, there's no way that a society of, of post-scarcity could generate that kind of man or justify his morals that he obviously is implicitly carrying forward. And so, you know, Picard is this, this sort of anachronism. You have to imagine that he came out of a time machine in, in order to in order to be the kind of person he was in, in a world that was secular, basically immoral, and 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 post scarcity. There there would be no hardship to generate that kind of energy in him. And Peterson is very much the same way. He just he, he's arrived, I guess, in a time warp from the fifties. And the thing is, is that nothing about the macrocosmic society works the way his 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 explicit political 
theory says it should. And so he's kind of falling back on, on deeper emotions. And I think they kind of failed him. I think the whole, and not with Peterson, the, the big barrier was the whole anonymous accounts thing. I said, I haven't paid attention to Peterson very closely. And because of that, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know exactly why people are angry at him other than him, like his murder of the English tongue in his conservative manifesto. Yeah, but, that was rough. Uh, uh, right. Yeah, I, I assume it has to do with the attack on anonymous Twitter accounts, right? It was, yeah, yeah. No, it was he came out very uh, aggressively against uh, anonymous Twitter accounts, which is very confusing. I mean, I get the idea, right? Like the theory is, okay, well, I had my real name and I went through this cancellation and I stood my ground and I put my reputation on the line. And if everyone else would just do that, yeah. then like we would be able to win this thing. And this uh, this attitude is pretty genuine, actually. Like for people who think this is a show or like, like this is actually pretty genuine and something I run into all the time when I'm talking to mainstream conservative figures. Like the, I've heard this many, many times from people who you think would know better like well if we can just get every person to have the courage of their convictions and speak the truth in their in, in their everyday interactions then like we'll just turn this whole thing around and for a guy i, who, I don't know how the how does the conversation end there because for for anybody who who knows how modern workplaces work that's just not how it works like okay like peterson he can get basically defrocked as an academic and then he gets then he just gets a a two thousand dollar a month, or probably more than that, like twenty thousand dollar a month Patreon, yeah, and just makes videos and like then becomes like a millionaire off of that. Like that's not an option for most people. Like you stand up against the system, you're going to get your your opportunities are going to be absolutely destroyed, and the activists come after you, and you're not going to have a Patreon to fall back on. This is this is an incredible risk. I mean, we are all taking here doing this. And light anonymity is the only thing protecting our families. I, I don't understand how this doesn't occur to people. I think a lot of them have been really removed from for a long time. A lot of these people are professionals. And, you know, they're, again, I think they're being honest. I think they're being genuine in some cases. But, like, I think they're just so far removed from, you know, hey, I, I make my living, you know, you know, telling people what I think, even though it's often very controlled anyway, but they're less likely to agree to, to realize that, I think. But, you know, they, they think, oh, well, I do this and, and, and it's not a big deal. And, yeah, I know there's some people getting canceled here and there, but I think they're just so far removed from kind of the day to day life of someone making, you know, 40, 50 grand a year whose entire life is going to get completely destroyed if they get laid off from their job. Like you said, they're not going to have the option to go on a speaking tour and write a best-selling book. And, you know, that that's the thing. Peterson, you know, should know better. He lives in a country where, you know, the trucker protest, these people had their lives destroyed, had their bank accounts shut down. You know, the, their, their, yeah. not just their bank account, the bank accounts of their family, bank accounts of people who, who supported them. Like he understands the, in theory, you know, the consequence for this, but he did the same thing when it came to the truckers, right? He told them to just go home, right? In the yeah. middle of what, like when it comes to standing tall at the end of the day, he just says, well, actually maybe you should back down and let the government do whatever they want. You shouldn't really stand up. And by the way, now that you've exposed yourself and your life is going to be destroyed and the government's going to come after your bank account. Oh, well, you know, I'm going to go sell another million books or something, right? Yeah, and, and if and if they their lives were destroyed, that would kind of be more grist for the mill in terms of Peterson's success. And I I don't want to imply that you know I don't know I can't look into his soul and say he's a bad actor, but but the incentives of conservatism are essentially to whine about tragedy while doing nothing to build anything in its wake.
And, you know, <clears throat> the figure that's kind of standing in the background of this process in my own mind, who had a much larger impact on my life than Peterson was Roger Eher, mm. who was just, I mean, who's instrumental in my conversion back to Christianity, living in a blue state and, and kind of trying to find a middle ground between sort of the, I I don't know what the most delicate words are to say, but kind of the the bland stupidity of 2000s evangelicalism and my distaste with secularism, uh, progressive secularism of my my home state. And, you know, Dreher was like this bridge to that. But then at some point he just, you realize that like his entire career is spent selling these, these reactions like he's he, he's chicken he has no solution he, he just sells he's kind of like oh the sky is falling the sky is falling you know who, who i don't know who can afford to listen to this or who likes this stuff but any solution that comes up he he doesn't like you know i remember listening to rod draher describe curtis yarvin as like this sort of weird internet villain and he obviously hadn't read the guy right yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, that's how I, I, that's how I first kind of came across the name of Menchus Moldbug back in the day. And, uh, it, what's so strange is that it, I guess I don't know how much you, how you want to segue to this, but in, in Rod Dreher's case, the, the inciting incident that people are really reacting to now is Dreher is essentially instrumental in organizing a cancellation campaign of, uh, of a prominent teacher at a classical Christian academy for for basically very little for for basically profanity for online profanity and for being mean to ano- other anonymous people online under a pseudonym and you know i i you know i don't know what to say to this i know a lot of my friends i i, I reacted incredibly negatively to this and i i don't know again it, it depends on how much people know about this and but you, you kind of wonder what how how does this person's world exist if he's going to take down this person for shit posting, and even potentially, according to Dreher, possibly scuttle this entire school because he he perceives these this sort of profanity and the shit posting as the Trojan horse of white supremacy. How is any kind of institution ever supposed to function? Uh, the second a person sins and specifically sins against the, the enemy that you're trying to guard against, you're going to cancel them and destroy their entire legacy and put them on blast and humiliate them and destroy their crowdfunding. Oh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's impossible to imagine what these people are thinking. And I, to me, I don't know. This is, there's, there's a, point where you just have to understand these people as being detached from reality and it's tragic it's tragic and uh, i think we're all kind of looking for responses right now what what's very clear to me is that people like rod Dreher cannot continue to be touchstones for any serious people who are looking for anything other than to slow down progressivism for a few years or in rod Dreher's case actually accelerate it because I guarantee you, he's been broadcasting the danger of white supremacy infiltrating Christian academies for the last two or three weeks now. If people take this line, like they teach a new generation of evangelical kids that there's a secret plot afoot to smuggle in Nazism into their school, and that the best thing they can do is to witch hunt all of their teachers for white supremacy, like what are these kids going to, I mean, like, and what do they get? They get, oh, CRT is also bad. You know, and, and you should like the founding fathers. 
well, let me tell you what's going to happen. These kids are going to go to college and then they're going to learn that by any standard of the word, our founding fathers were white supremacists. And they're going to learn that from experts who are fans of Ibrahim X. Kendi. And then all of the witch hunting you're directing against these people with minor transgressions online, they're going to be sent back and they're going to witch hunt you. And everyone can see this. Everyone who can see this, who isn't these, these thought leaders in the conservative movement. And I'm at a loss at what to say to these people because I haven't located anyone who will actually defend this approach to the problem of, of politics in the modern era. It just seems to exist in these conservative luminaries. And then... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's in search of its own justification as far as I'm concerned, because it just it's insanity. Well, I think it might be self-evident to us and maybe many of the people who are more familiar with us, but we do have some more people coming in who might not be familiar. So it might be it might be behoove us to, to speak a little bit more on to why this is so ineffective or why this is so dangerous, because I think, you're, you know, I, I look at someone like Jerry and I didn't really know, you know, Rob Jerry that well. I wasn't I mean, I heard of him. I you know read one or two things here or there, but I wasn't super familiar. And, and you know when you see a guy like that who is supposed to be like some kind of like thought leaders or supposed to be, you know, have some, some kind of understanding kind of where we're at and pushing back when you see him completely, just not understand why, like it's so much more important for him to purge anything that might get like a bad article from the New York times than it is to actually push back against the thing that he says is so dangerous. and so, you know, it's so likely to corrupt. Like it's very clear that the non-existent threat of, like you said, like some kind of white supremacy flanking him from the right and taking over Christianity is far more terrifying to him than progressives doing and winning the battles that they've been winning for decades. And it's just really hard to understand how someone can be completely caught up in this idea. And it, and, and while it, it may be more prevalent among like maybe leaders like Dreher, like people in this kind of bubble, I think it does exist to a certain extent in, in kind of the wider, maybe people who are, you know, moderately right and don't understand maybe kind of what's going i think they can fall into the storyline very easily well i mean the the thing is is you know i i don't exactly know how much i want to get into the weeds on Dreher because sure yeah. i i'm probably one of the few people who's just like read practically everything of Dreher has ever written and you know i can't piece together i mean a lot of it's incredibly personal and there's a dimension to this that can't help but touch on Dreher's personal life story uh, but that's probably not appropriate to get into. But with Dreher, it, like you said, it's ironic because his entire career is whining about how the left is coming for us and we're all going to lose and the sky is falling and blah, 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 right? He, he should be the one who's aware of how this works, but he seems to be blithely unaware of the process involved. And this latest drama with the the classical Christian education and this 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 Aaron teacher who got canceled demonstrates this. Uh, Dreher 
doesn't seem to understand well I mean, first of all he, he has this story about himself that because he spends a lot of time whining about the left like impotently he's he's like doing something about it like the fact that he's complaining about them and decrying them is doing something about it and him you know taking active steps to crush somebody <laughs> inside his own community like that's just him being fair so like he, he whines about the New York Times for five articles and whines and whines and whines and sells books on it. And, you know, then someone says a bad word on the right and he destroys their entire life. And like that's, you know, it balances out, right? Uh, it, it doesn't <laughs> at all, right? You, you, you've, you've essentially destroyed an entire avenue of, of right-wing uh, resistance, uh, an entire cell of it. And all you've really done for the New York Times and uh, the rest of the left wing is provide them with a really interesting clown. Rodriguez doesn't know this, but I was actually amazed to learn about this. But in 2016, I was amazed to hear my progressive friends talking about Rodriguez. Uh, you know, these are like deep blue state progressives. Like they would never watch my YouTube channel. Uh, they would never read American Conservative or anything else like that, or National Review even, or watch Fox News. But they're all talking about Rodriguez. And you're like wondering, like, why are they all talking about Rodriguez? Well, it's because he's one of the on, on on a few shows, most prominently El Chapo Trap House. He's this clown that they bring up to to laugh at like traditional Christians and how they whine impotently. And so they're all laughing at him because he's having a hissy fit over the New York Times and he's just whining while while Rome burns around him, basically. And this is a joke for them. And it's funny. I mean, it's basically like watching uh, the, the 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 you know the famous meme of the SJW kind of non-binary person screaming when Trump is uh, elected or, or sworn in. Well, He's that's Rodriguez for the left. I mean, he literally is that person to these people, and uh, that that's the role he plays. He thinks he's doing something, but he actually is only carrying out the the wishes he, he's basically an entertainment product for the cathedral and apparently he is a foot foot soldier in their ideological expansion uh, yeah that's the most horrific part there is like not only is he willing to kind of like play the clown or you know to 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 be you know they they can all stand around and, and mock him as he as he cries impotently into the sky but not he takes breaks in between that to go hunt down the wrong thinkers yeah. on his own side right so the old like he said the only active because i mean a lot of people say well why aren't you guys doing something why aren't you guys doing something so i don't want to always you know i don't want to just bag on him for that but like the time he does actually take action it's only to destroy someone to his right right and this is where Charles Haywood comes in, right? Because Charles Haywood of the Worthy House, who, who's been on this uh, channel before, he writes this, or he talks about no enemies to the right. And this is, Dreyer, Dreyer really takes issue yeah. with this, right? He says that, you know, Haywood is a terrible influence. He's trying to destroy Christianity and bring, oh, you know, all wow. these terrible you know, tax into that thing. And uh, there, there's this really great, uh, for anyone who didn't catch it, great back and forth with um with Charles Haywood, I believe DC Miller is DC Miller, the yeah, yeah. Is it Daniel Miller? Yeah, I think it is. Right? I think that's right. Yeah. And so <laughs> so uh, over on uh, I am seventeen seventy six, and I think um I, I think Haywood makes some really powerful points there multiple times. Right, he kind of kind of explains why all of this is is theater 
uh, at the end of the day for Dreher why this is going to be, you know, completely impotent and complete misunderstanding of the scenario. And also something in which I don't, I don't know if Dreher's, maybe he did address it. I haven't read all of his stuff around this, but, you know, talks about what, well, why didn't you just go to this guy in private, right? Like if you really, yeah, that's the big question. This, Roger never answers that question. Right. Because, and this is the thing, like there is an actual dialectic to be had here because, like I said, like you, you can't, and this is, I think, where Haywood's actually wrong. And I'm not saying that like to kind of morally posture like Roger here, but you can't just say no enemies to the right and leave it at that. That's how you get fortune. And like we're, we're not trying to do the same thing as the left is doing. We're not trying to dissolve everything real into a political conflict that will devour everything whole because we benefit from chaos. If you're trying to build something, you have to have moral standards and you're going to have to gatekeep and you're not just going to have to gatekeep on ideology you're going to have to gatekeep on a variety of different properties and so there's this a fundamental asymmetry here but because of this because of this fundamental asymmetry and because there needs to be a balancing act between political realism and 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 basically fostering a moral community inside your own moral community prudence is primary and there was just absolutely no display of prudence on the part of Dreher or any of these people who, who went after this individual. We can call them Tolius for 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 purpose. Uh, you know, again, like I said in my podcast, if this had been a marital affair, if this had been him shouting "I want to kill you" at a sports game, if this if this was him even tagging this, like writing graffiti on the side of a bridge or something like that. I would have never heard of Tolius's name living in my blue state if that had been the case. And those are all moral transgressions. And of course, you know, using profanity and being mean, and that's not behavior becoming a Christian gentleman. And we need to correct that. But guess how we decided to correct it? We decided to correct it by essentially feeding him to the cathedral. We decided to correct it by by making him an example, both of uh, well, both of white supremacy that the cathedral loves, that our enemies love, and also of how weak we are and how able, how easily we will be, we will be to infiltrate, be infiltrated by the next generation of their white supremacy witch hunters. And uh, I, I again, I don't know what to say to this. <laughs> it's just we, we can't afford to have leaders that are this clueless. I suppose. And, uh, you know, this is, a again, I think Rod Dreher's is kind of done at this stage. There's no way to kind of incorporate, unless he learns something from this, but he never answers any of the questions that are brought to him by Haywood or any of the people that objected to how this was handled. Uh, he, he just emotes, and he also copies one of the least favorite, uh, I, this is actually, I think, I, I remember the moment where I, 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 I said to myself, okay, Dreher just has to go away now. And that was the moment where people, I think this is before Haywood stepped onto the scene. People called Dreher out for being, you know, uh, they called him out for being cruel and for being unmerciful and, and, and for being, and for being unfair. And, and, and Dreher, he copies this from, from progressives and that what he does is he superimposes himself as a judge 
into the role of the victims. And he's like, yeah, I feel like we're, things are unfair going on. Everyone, yeah, this guy totally is who I canceled. He was being unfair to everyone. He was being unfair to our school. He was being unfair to us when he get, went and did this to all, all of us. So here, here Roger here is acting as the inquisitor. And the second his judgment is called into question, he does not defend it as just. He puts himself in the shoes of a hypothetical victim of Tullius's because, again, this is all anonymous online. There is no victim coming forward with a grievance. And starts moralizing about how hurt he is uh, by, by, by the actions of his victim. <laughs> And I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is exactly the behavior I've come to expect from shitlibs in my home state. And, and to see it now kind of repeated, I guess he learned this in when he lived in a blue state, this, this kind of behavior. It's, it's just frankly disgusting. And uh, again, I, I'm not so sure what, what comes after it, I guess. Uh, probably nothing. There's, there's really no way to, to resurrect this conversation. And it's a conversation that needs to happen, unfortunately. Yeah, I feel like there's not a whole lot of following still with Dreher. I don't think he, I don't think he moves the needle a whole lot, especially at this point. But I, I do want to get to kind of our la uh, one more gatekeeper. This one will be a softball. So the, the, this, you know, the last two, uh, th this one will be very easy. But I think it's worth mentioning because I do hear all the time. So let's talk about someone like James Lindsay, right? Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, like, well. like, like this one will be much easier because it's not coming from from your moral tradition or anything. So, so I think it'll be a lot easier to address. But, but it's worth saying because a lot of people will tell me because you know Lindsay came after a lot of us, uh, you know, saying, oh, you can't you can't listen to these near reactionaries, any of these people, like they're super dangerous. It's the end of the world if you listen to them. It's it's the return of all the deep dark things. And so he warns, it tries to warn a lot of people away from kind of this sphere. How, a lot of people ask me, why can't you guys just, you know, figure it out? Why can't you guys just work together? Don't we under, aren't we all on the same side here? Uh, why, why is Lindsay gatekeeping so hard against kind of the, the postmodern, you know, right or whatever? Well, I'm glad you brought up James. I was afraid you were going to bring up David French, but I'm really glad oh, no. you brought up James Lindsay because yeah. and now I have an opportunity to close out my, uh, discussion of Rod Dreher with a compliment to Rod Dreher, because the last good thing I'll say about Rod Dreher is that Rod Dreher prevented me from becoming James Lindsay, because James Lindsay was very much the kind of person I was in, what was it, like 2009 or whatever, or 2007. Did you wield the blade? Did you, yeah. is there, is oh, there a video pro of you Probably, <laughs> I was in the anime. Mastering there there, there the might blade. be videos of me wielding, you know. Well, uh, burn it now. Making, making a video, out. holding yeah. a katana. I'm not going to say there, there there aren't, who knows, it's mm -hmm. the internet, right? Um, but uh, the, the you know, kids, don't do the weebu thing. <laughs> you no. don't want those videos out there. Not even just, once. Just yeah. saying. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, James Lindsay, I don't know. This is, there, there's a common thread in between James Lindsay and Rod Dreher and that I, I can tell James Lindsay went to college at a certain time. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure he's the same age as me because he's occupying a certain role, just like Rod Dreher is occupying a certain role. In Rod Dreher's case, Charles Haywood was right to point out that the role Dreher wants to fill is Roger Scruton. Unfortunately, that role is no longer open. For uh, James Lindsay, uh, 
the role is a little harder because I can't think of anybody who currently embodies it in print. But the role he wants to occupy is that of the good uh, non-progressive in college. Now, old fogies like me who are older millennials will remember this time before 2006 in college where there is this like place you could be, you know, this sort of pendulette kind of uh, mm. place, like Bill Maher sort of place, this sort of uh, Andrew Sullivan type place you could be on, on college campuses where you could kind of be a gadfly and a libertarian and you didn't, you didn't do the whole progressive thing. You, you like South Park, you know, South Park, they were always going after progressives. Another great example is um, their episode of on immigration, uh, South Park. You rewatch that one. It's really good. Uh, it, it indicates how the, the liberal mind works. But uh, this, this role was like, I want to be the good anti-progressive. And, and that's obviously how James Lindsay developed his identity. And his entire career is trying to design a place where that's still a thing, where you can be a good anti-progressive in the modern order. And that's just not going to happen. And so he, his idea is that we, 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 we can somehow excise wokeness by cutting out the authors he identifies as being CRT or postmodern or whatever the buzzwords are. And uh, the, the, uh, the the problem here is um again there's a meme about this so i probably i'm not telling you anything you don't know but for the benefit of the audience what what james Lindsay doesn't know is that this world that he wants to occupy this role he wants to occupy basically died in the 80s and 90s because of changes that were made and that he approved of in the 60s and 70s specifically the advent of strong civil rights laws and there's that whole meme where it's James Lindsay's 8,000 point and wokeness is obliterated <laughs> by the Civil Rights Act. And all of these yeah. authors who he's raging against, like, you know, Derek Bell and, and the likes, these are all old. I mean, he, Derek Bell, the developer of CRT, I think I'm remembering the right name, but he, he was an old hat civil rights lawyer from, <laughs> from, from like way back in the 70s. Like he, he was on the ground doing this stuff. The, the original creators of the civil rights movement approved of affirmative action, which was racially essentializing and it embodied none of the classically liberal principles they they say that were were were, were de facto before 2012. So the problem is is that James Lindsay has to construct a fictitious history of the 20th century before 2012 and a fictitious story about how CRT became prominent in, in the academy. Like, you know, how did, you know, does James Lindsay ever give me a convincing story about how this happened? I mean, it just seems like, okay, well, everyone's brains fell out of their head and they started adopting this postmodern neo-Marxism for no reason whatsoever. And now we're here. Uh, that's not how the conversation went on. I, I, w I was in Berkeley in the early 2000s. I remember California in the 1990s. That's not how the stuff became popular. <laughs> and to pretend like, you know, this, this history didn't happen is, you know, he's, he's trying to literally create a historical anachronism. Yeah. And, I, and he's a co co is, it's, com it's comedic at this stage. Yeah, I think there's, like you said, there's the certain time where you could have been born or gone to college where, like, you can believe this story because you, like, existed in kind of 
the uh, you know the the interim where like things didn't feel the identity you know you can believe that identity politics just kind of spawned out of nowhere right like oh yeah. a few, you know a few years you know th- all of a sudden the left figured out identity politics could generate a lot of power for them and so they just took that up and you can you can pretend like there was just this happy 90s point where like none of these issues existed and we kind of reached the utopia that you know civil rights legislation had offered everything was working fine none of this stuff was like building up in the background and then all of a sudden like identity politics and wokeness just kind of explode onto the scene and and in that i think i think there is a certain time in which you could believe that if like you said you you went to college of time were born at a certain time watched certain tv shows that kind of thing but for people who are uh, unfamiliar for you know i think both of them are the audience is probably familiar but for a second like why is wokeness like why is kind of this current iteration of progressivism a natural uh a, kind of the natural flow of civil rights legislation. Why is this the consequence of kind of the civil rights legislation? Well, it's because this, I mean, it, it basically is civil rights and that's, that that's sort of the dumb way of putting it is that it's, it's the strong implementation of civil rights. The, the more important way to think of this, it's, it's because of the failure of the civil rights movement, because the civil rights movement was not just against de jure segregation or, or against specific laws in the South. It, it was essentially a, a, a religious promise. And, you know, King very much embodies this. And that's another figure that we, you know, that's not really remembered accurately, in my opinion. But uh, it was a religious promise that America would be an integrated country and that race wouldn't matter. The problem is, is that this promise has basically failed. I mean, it's failed. It's almost all realistic levels. And so this platitudinous stuff that comes out of the 60s, how there will be equal opportunity, it kind of devours itself because the the idea of equal opportunity, regardless of what the Reaganite conservatives said, the, the idea was equal statistical results. Because if there are unequal statistical outcomes, then how can you say there was equal opportunity? Unless you're implying that there could be some like foundational inequality, and of course, our entire our entire post civil rights thinking denies the possibility that that could ever exist, and and this is this is uh, you know uh, there's there's a reason this 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 kind of stuff this this James Lindsay perspective it, it it can't really survive in a dialectic against these hard questions. If you ask people hard questions about equality of opportunity, eventually people will realize that this concept is bullshit and they'll discard it absolutely, or they will become full progressives or they'll start asking deeper questions about enlightenment values. Like I think you and I eventually did, but, but you can't, you can't maintain the, the Reaganite Dinesh D'Souza view of equal opportunity that is unsustainable based on the facts we've observed on the ground and trying to convince yourself that we're just a charter school program away from implementing this or, or that if, if the people administrating Chicago or New York were all disciples of William F. Buckley, that this problem would go away is nuts and everyone knows it's nuts and it's insulting to the intelligence of other people to claim that that's the solution. And so we you know, we see in people like James Lindsay and people who I most recently tried to convince, uh, talk out of this perspective, Adam and Sitch from the YouTube channel, Adam and Sitch, 
they're essentially selling people a faulty product. It's a car that basically, like in their bubble, what they're saying makes sense. But it makes sense basically because they're misrepresenting the claims of their opponents. They're misrepresenting the history in the case of progressivism. They're presenting like this like it's some kind of weird mind virus that came out of nowhere and was not the product of a specific problem, namely the inability to institute proper racial integration. And they're, they're still manning the, the critique of it coming from the right. And uh, the, the issue is that there's just so much of our, of our moral system has kind of been built up around triggering on these hate backs or these kind of pronouncements that sound wrong. And so these these, these moralizers, uh, James Lindsay, despite himself, can become a moralizer and kind of selectively remove key facts out of the conversation. And, and with those facts removed, it looks like he has a case. Mm-hmm. But those facts can never be introduced into the conversation. Otherwise, their arguments collapse. And from history, we know that they do not survive so again what are you buying when you you buy james Lindsay's ideology uh, you know ultimately nothing U- ultimately you're buying an argument that is degenerate and will that will collapse in on itself the second you take it outside of uh, the reservation of a few hashtags and you know a youtube channel that curates it's the questions it asks so we've touched on the three major gatekeepers I wanted to do. You did talk a little bit about David French. I don't know if you want to waste any time on on French at this point. It's uh, he's just he just he hates the right. He hates the people of the right. He hates the values. Like I don't even under I'm I'm even almost tired of making the conservative case for joke anymore because it's not he's not even bothered to making a conservative case at this point. It's just yeah, a not- screed after screed about the right. The question is, you know, who are these people's audiences? And I, I think French and Dreher kind of share a similar audience. I think Dreher's, it's much more surprising why Dreher's audience is still on board because they seem to understand the, the notion of the metastasizing left. That this isn't some kind of static force that's pushing in a direction. It's a historical process. But you know, these people do have audiences, I guess, but it's becoming increasingly boring to debunk this stuff. Uh, French, like I said, I'm, I, you can just say the word and you already know the argument against it. He, right. He's become his own self-parody. And maybe I think Dreher is going to become a similar self-parody in 2023. I don't think he was there before. I think people were still holding out this hope that there would be a middle ground uh, for both Dreher and Peterson. But I think as we what we've seen is that there there basically isn't any, and that you know because it, the, the problem isn't even that they want to have a more moderate version of the right wing, it, it's the fact that they just refuse to engage in certain types of questions that are being brought against them, and that's a common feature of of all of these characters is that you know for instance. I'm going to name an elephant in the room, right? Like I built my entire YouTube channel basically around the the idea that I would take seriously the objections of the alt-right, but I didn't think race was ultimately important. That was the first big video series I made. I guess the sexual revolution one was the first, but that was one of the first big video series that I made. And uh, it, it prominently features into my appreciation from people like Moldbug. So in many ways, you could say that I'm being a moderate. Like I'm trying to, I'm participating in a dialectic where I'm not taking the most extreme right-wing position I could be if you conceptualize right-wing positions that way. I'm trying to save a piece of liberalism 
or I'm trying to make it work in a way by 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 engaging by by seeing how it engages with reality. Uh, but but I think what what sort of fundamentally differentiates me from these lolcals, if I can speak in my own defense, I take the objections seriously. And in, in all of these instances, with David French, with Draher, with Lindsay, with Peterson, there's like these obvious retorts, and they they just don't answer them. They exclude them from the conversation because they can, because in this instance, PC works in their favor, or wokeness works in their favor, so they can control the dialectic that way, and they can exclude those questions from being brought to them. And then they can continue just, they can continue on the grift in a time warp and pretend like pretend like everyone isn't thinking those questions implicitly every time they read their source material, read their new material. And, and I guess this is, this is sort of the place we are right now. These people have to become irrelevant, not because they're moderates, but because they refuse to try to potentially integrate their moderate values into the facts as we see them occurring. And they refuse to try to take their moderate ideology and answer actual questions that we have before us. Uh, do you want lasting institutions that are not progressive? If you do, you're going to have to deal with the fact that triggering on the left's buzzwords will destroy those institutions, full stop. Do you want to actually be able to speak freely in the academy? Uh, well, if you do, you have to acknowledge that this moral framework that James Lindsay wants to copy over from the 70s isn't going anywhere. It collapses in on itself. And... You know, without that kind of engagement, these people are just useless. Uh, and, you know, it's it's hard. And it's a shame, too. And I know I'm rambling a little bit here. But it's a shame because this is a conversation, like I said, we need to have. We we can't just become immoral purity spiral spi spi spiralers. And there needs to be a synthesis with the previous age. You can't just reinstall the 19th century. Or you can't just reinstall the ninth century if you're a pagan. There are certain developments that have happened technologically that we need to, to react to and take on board. And I, I feel like the, the sort of there's sort of this dark corollary to the Drehers and the David Frenches and the Petersons of this world. And the dark corollary is that there, there's nobody who's actually bringing these objections forward in an intellectually serious way. How do you police proper behavior in a political environment when the natural instinct is just to reflexively play the last game back at it? Mm -hmm. You don't want Christian leaders that are just casually dropping racial slurs online. That, that's a huge problem. It's not a problem that indicates you should essentially instigate a cancellation campaign for the benefit of your enemies, uh, but, but it is something that weakens you. And so does sort of uh, deferring to this immoral power analysis. Machiavellianism is true in a sense. But once once you convince yourself, like, you know, uh, a friend of mine online who will go unnamed here, that, that everything ideal, all ide ideological or religious is just pretense for Machiavellian power, then you've essentially excused yourself from, from actually participating in, in, in real politics. Because all, all politics is the advocacy for certain beliefs and ideas that are, that are idealistic and, and not simply power games. And, 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 if, you, and if you are a, a player who doesn't believe in that, the, the, doesn't believe in your own religion, you are essentially uh, 
you essentially are castrated in a spiritual sense. Yeah. You're, you're, you're the soul of your people or of your group has no life in it. There's no generative force. There's nothing that's holy about it. I know I'm using religious language and then mixing it with Machiavellianism, but that's a huge problem. And the thing is that these total lol cows prevent that deeper conversation from actually happening. And that's what's really frustrating about them. Yeah, no, I, I think that's important because even, you know, even the Italian elite theorists, or at least one of them, Mosca, says that, you know, political theory or political formulas, you know, the people do have to believe in them. Like the leaders, they're given their power. They can't just be naked justifications for power. They they do actually need to have sway, ideological uh, weight with the people and with the those that are actually implementing them if they're if they're going to mean anything, if they're actually going to motivate people. So I think that's important to keep in mind. But we've talked a lot about gatekeeping. So let's try to spend a little bit of time before we have to go to the super chats on friends. So part of the, part of this was about friends, right? So you did a great little thread uh, on like how we should treat friends, how we can identify tr- friends, how friends should interact in a way that you know, is, you know, even if we don't agree on everything or if we're trying to hash things out, we do so in a productive way that makes sure that we can kind of move the ball forward. So like, what, what are some of those tips for people who are saying, okay, well, we want to avoid this nasty, you know, gatekeeping, but we also want to be able to kind of move people towards a particular idea. How do we identify friends? How do we interact with them? That kind of thing. Well, this is, um, I, I don't, does anyone remember when the the whole friends like the the f r e n s word became so no, popular no. on the right? It seemed to really pick up steam after twenty twenty one, but I, I feel like it must be older, right? Uh, but at any rate, like I kind of use it colloquially to mean sort of internet ally who I've never met in real life, I guess. And uh, well, okay, I mean. <sighs> So, so the, the big thing with the whole friends thread, this was my attempt to address this issue about how you identify people who are, who are worthy of being uh, like, you know, allies, basically. It's friends basically the ally. Like everyone in the progressive space talks about allies this and allies that. I think friends might be the right-wing version of allies. And of course, it's, it's much more difficult to be a, an ally to the right because we're not just playing pure politics here. Charles Haywood said that the, the you begin with the end in mind, and the end is the total victory of the right over the left, or the total destruction of the left. I think he, that's how he put it. To me, that kind of begs the question about what is left and right. From my point of view, what we're really fighting for is we're fighting for the the, the political ability to create um, spaces or, or areas where people can be remoralized and re-territorialized. So we want to, modernity is corrosive to the human form and to human and to the human spirit. And, and because of that, uh, people need to find meaning and truth in, in things, in, 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 in things that they actually believe in. And so when we talk about who's broadly allied with this project, we're talking about people who believe you know, maybe some Machiavellian allies notwithstanding. We're talking about people who believe in higher powers and and who understand that, at least in the moment, uh, the pursuit of communion with these higher powers or the pursuit of a strong moral system that, that would commend a proper human life 
it's going to involve a degree of separation and a degree of independence that that our current globalized leaders just do not want and do not like, and in fact feel as threatening to their ultimate power. Because it is. Because independent human populations mean that they are not in need of managerial control. And if those independent human populations look like they're healthier and better than, than the highly managed victims of the global American empire and their homogenized pods, then that creates a political problem for our enemies. So that's kind of my starting point. Um, but, but really at this stage, what the right needs to do is it needs to make, it needs to be, it needs to be able to make promises and keep them. It needs to be able to give and receive loyalty and, and it's to be able to hold a line against the progressive forces that want to tear this apart. And I, I can't really go, I am probably not appropriate for me just to go through all of the 20 points in my thread, yeah, sure, but, but, but this, this is the core of it. And so like, what do you, what is the minimum thing you need to be able to, you know, give a promise and, and have someone else respect that you'll keep it or to receive a promise from someone else and, and feel confident in it. And more importantly, what, what is the minimum you need to feel loyalty to a person? And we talk about Caesar a lot uh, on, on these, in these spheres uh, because we, we, we know history and we know sort of the cyclical view of history. And that seems to suggest the only solution to our problems is some kind of uh, monarchical source of power that can crush the oligarchy. Uh, what, what do you need in a Caesar? Well, you know... Does he need to be the same religion as you? Does he need to be uh, the same value system as you? I mean, minimally, in a sense, right? He needs to know what a good value system is and what a, value, uh, a bad one is. And he doesn't need to be hostile to it. But but also, more importantly, you know, he needs to... A, a friend, in order to be a loyal friend, needs to have a certain level of prudence and, and a certain level of, um, of of knowledge about what's actually going on. One of the sort of essential tips I give in, in the 25 tips is, and this sort of applies to the Dreer situation. I mean, we have to enforce moral standards and we're going to have disagreements in between us. Uh, but, but if you, and, but if, if you're interested in the project of, of not just getting devoured by the, the global Leviathan, you're going to have to respect the fact that you can't turn your disagreements into cancellation campaigns in the language of the enemy. So, so if there's a cancellation campaign going on against, I don't know, pagans or pickup artists, which are two groups that I've had frequent problems with, or people who worship race, you know, to bring back the 2017 alt-right. These are groups that I've had serious problems with in the past. Uh, but, but I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon of attempts to destroy their lives for non-crimes, uh, even though I would have political problems with them otherwise. And furthermore, when I express my political problems, and this is really the kicker, I'm going to use a different language than theirs. So mm. if I feel that people are being unjust to individuals based on their background, I'm not going to call that racism. I'll call it the older word, the more correct word, which is bigotry. If I if I think that uh, there's a problem with people getting obsessed with, you know, whiteness, I, I'm going to say that's like, you know, that's purity spiral. I'm not going to call it white supremacy, right? Or I'm going to call it sort of like, uh, you know, a, a phenotype obsession. Uh, it, 
the, the, the issue is, and you know, our enemies know this, it, human brains politically, in the ordinary instance, they, our moral systems are designed to trigger on language. They should trigger on substance and action, but we can't process that. So we trigger on action. So we don't think of the actions that are implied by racism. We just think that racism is the bad word. So let's kill the racist. And that's what makes the equivocation the left does so useful to to disintegrating these things. And so like a minimal burial barrier we will need is to kind of not use the left's language, not have their ants smell. And, and if they're going to make the case that somebody is evil, first, we'll be the ones to enforce our own rules. And second of all, that case will not go on in the language that they choose, nor carry the consequences that they wanted to, nor play into the same narrative that they're trying to spin on a macrocosmic level. And, and that's sort of minimally necessary for leaders in this circle. That so, and true human health are what we need. So when I heard Haywood say no enemies to the right, this is kind of what I heard. And maybe I didn't understand what he meant, but I, but I think it was somewhat closer to what you were saying. I guess I can always ask Charles next time he's on. But, but, but when I heard him <coughs> say that, this is the kind of thing I had in mind, is that it's not that we would never have disagreements on the right. In fact, he specifically says in his response in that discussion, hey, actually, there needs to be a way for us to do this, but it needs to happen behind closed do- doors. It needs to be a one, it needs to be a personal thing. There needs to be a correction of that kind of thing. I think his point was like, we're not going to waste time chasing the boogeymen of the left, right? Like we're not going to focus using the language of the left, uh, hunting down the enemies of the left for them. If there's someone to our right that we disagree with, we're going to correct them, you know, in, in a different language, in a different way, rather than, you know, and we're not going to waste the majority of their time pretending like those people are the most dangerous thing to, you know, the United States of America today, right? We're not going to do that. So that that's yeah. how I saw what he said, but maybe I misunderstood. I no, thought no, it was much I, closer right. to your I'm sure that's what Haywood means. The, the, yeah. Okay, I mean, this is, I think this is sort of a generational thing. <laughs> like, you, you know, I, I don't consider myself one of the old bogeys here, but I kind of am because I remember 2016 and 2017. Mm-hmm. And if you were sort of circulating around hard right spaces online in those years, uh you know, people were using no enemies to the right, and they weren't—they weren't meaning it in the way that you just said right there. Yeah. They were hard purity spiraling, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's the kind of purity spiraling that works if you're on the left, because of what the left is, and because the left has power. But and I know I know Charles Haywood. He means what you just said, and he is because he is a very nuanced and prudential person. He he he, yeah. but. Uh, but there's there's danger in in the extremes of these things, and uh, I, I'm always kind of cautious when these things get memified, mm-hmm. because the problem is, is that eventually your your high IQ meme is going to become a low IQ meme. I mean, we see this with friend and me all the time. Yeah, I see that abused endlessly to mean that you that any ideology is bullshit. Uh, I, that's not what Schmidt meant. No. no. Uh, it was something more nuanced. It was about sort of sociologically how humans can conceptualize politics and what politics sort of realistically becomes in the limit. It wasn't to say that you should be a nihilist or that you know your personal you know enemy because you know he did you dirty 
in, in pool that one time is, is equivalent to like Adolf Hitler or something like that. Like it's, it's not that. So I'm always very cautious, you know, that the, these memefied and then sloganized versions are going to become kind of um, turned into to low IQ versions of themselves. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I, I always go, you know, Schmidt, is, that frenemy distinction is so important and there's a lot of subtlety to it. And so many people just throw it out there that they don't understand that like Schmidt had different definitions for the private enemy and the public enemy and just everything else that's involved in that is it's, it's like you said, the memification of those things can become very dangerous. Uh, but let's, I think we're stacking up some super chats here. Yeah, let's cool. go ahead and pivot there. So I'm not keeping you forever. Uh, let's see here. Oh, actually, while we're doing this, you just remind everybody uh, where they can find your stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. So my YouTube channel is called The Distributist. And my Substack is called uh, Letters from Fiddler's Green. And I have a podcast that's roughly the same name that airs on my YouTube channel. I'm in the process of reorganizing this stuff. So hopefully um, I'll, I'll have it more together in the coming year. But yeah, that's it. Excellent. Yeah, make sure to check all that stuff out, guys. And by the way, if you want to listen to this just in the podcast, uh, there's now the podcast up with the blaze. So if you go over there, all your major uh, platforms will have it. And if you do subscribe to the podcast, just if you can leave a rating and a review, that definitely helps. We appreciate it there. All right. Mm -hmm. So we've got one that came in before we started. So I don't think I can put it up on the screen, but I'll go ahead and read it out for everybody here. It's um, sorry, I'm going to butcher this man. Formosuli. Formosul, something to that effect, but thank you very much. Five dollars uh, says, I want to say you uh, want to say to your viewers that I met Dave pursuing a mutual hobby uh, where he didn't expect to be recognized. So don't feel alone. So uh, fr a friend spotted in the wild, Dave. Uh, yeah, um, I have some nerdy hobbies I engage in occasionally in real life. And I, <laughs> I guess I guess if you catch me in one of them. Uh, guilty as charged, I guess. Can, can I, can I like pull a, like a Warhammer game out of you? Are you playing the tabletop or are you just, are you just I have actually only played it like once. Oh man. This okay, is a different so. board game, but yeah. Right. If, you ever, if you, if you, if you, if somehow we ever meet, uh, we'll have to figure out how to get, get one of these on the table. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. That'll be really hard. It takes like a whole cart to bring one of these armies around. It does. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll play a small points game. It'll be yeah. all right. All right. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. We've got uh, falling outside the normal moral constraints for $2. Thank you very much. Uh, wishing you both a very Merry Christmas. Thank you very much, man. Merry Christmas to you as well. Very excited here uh, for everybody to enjoy the Christmas break. Might try to put a, a kind of a casual friend stream together after Christmas. Did that last year and everybody really enjoyed it. That was a great time. So might be able to get some people together for that. But thank you very much. We appreciate it. Uh, let's see have uh belisarius for five canadian for peterson to ask the question to abandon anonymity or to ask the right to abandon anonymity is to ask the right to perform a political bonsai charge it's just not practical for most people uh yeah belisarius I, I think that's right again especially in the situation you are in a place like canada it, it's just absolutely <coughs> financial suicide if not legal suicide to 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 do that kind of thing and so asking people in general to step out of this and it also, you know, that 
that limitation also, or that also limits people's ability to speak freely, right? There's certain things that are just not going to be expressed, ideas that are not going to be exchanged. Um, some of the most important Twitter posters that I know of uh, right now, people who are really exploring interesting ideas are anonymous posters who are able to do so because they can still work their day job and that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I, I'm totally against it. I, I don't understand that attack at all other than, than he doesn't want people to hurt his feelings, I guess. I'm done a- asking myself how Peterson got to these conclusions. I'm asking yeah. who's buying this. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm, I just don't understand who these people's audiences are. Let's say here, Shane Phelps, Friday, you guys have a similar way of talking, <laughs> talking and talk about the same things. I used to think you were the same guy. Thanks for the quality content. <laughs> I don't know. I don't wow. think I've often been confused uh, with the distributors, but uh, fair enough. You know, I did. I mean, to be fair, um, I did get started on this because I was watching your videos. Um, you know, I, I was I fell uh, down the rabbit hole of uh, that this guy Sargon of Akkad started talking to some guy. <laughs> the distributist on one of his streams and uh, that then I, I fell down that rabbit hole. So uh, if, if there's any similarities, it's only because I've probably consumed far too much of Dave's content at this point. Well, I, I, I think you, you have mastered this, uh, this way of concisely expressing ideas, which I just can't do. I, I, I never, I've always like, Oh, this will be a small Substack essay. Never has happened. <laughs> And, but yeah, uh, and also you have a much clearer way of speaking. I have this nasal uh, thing, but never been able to get around it. So, well, I appreciate it, but I, I like the verboseness too. I, I think that the you know, you know we each have our our ability, and yeah, I can I can do ten minute videos, but you're you're doing you know forty minute videos that I want to watch every minute of because they're they're very interesting. My favorite one, I think, is still the the one uh, where you have the. Uh, uh, Pulp Fiction and went through the different oh, types okay. of love. Of thank pulp you. Fiction. That was my favorite video. I like yeah. not to my own horn, but that's my personal one. Though I'm like pouring my soul out into it. It's like no one ever watched it. But <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. But they, they, thanks, man. I mean, I'm obviously you go. I'm a huge fan of uh, your work. So and also, also I should say congratulations on the new job too. I mean, that's oh, thank you. No, yeah. no, I appreciate. It. No, very yeah. Wild, <laughs> wild times. Uh, we we live in interesting times to be sure, but I appreciate it. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Dave Monahan for uh, $10 here. <coughs> I lost it with Dreher the hundredth time he complained about something he heard on NPR. Why is he listening yeah. to NPR when it's obviously enemy? Because that's where his real loyalties lie. Yeah. Say, say, saying, you, saying you listen to NPR because you like the stories and the jazz is like saying you replay Boy to Read the Articles yeah. at this stage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like... I guess someone probably did read Playboy to get the articles at some point in human history, but you know, I want to meet that guy because I got some questions for him. Right. <laughs> do, do you, I, I did not listen to a lot of NPR, but I did catch at some point, I don't know, I was driving around. It was during like the 2016 protest and it, or, or the 2016 election and the left is protesting and going crazy. Everyone forgets there was wild protests by the left during this time. Right. Like there's there's mm-hmm. there's straight up riotous type protests and like they're breathlessly uh, uh, reciting like poems about uh, standing up to Donald Trump and how they're going to save like on on news radio. Right. On public news radio. Like it's it's activists, you know, reciting these poems about how they all gathered in the Capitol building and yeah. joined hands. It's just like, uh, yeah, I, I don't understand how anyone is is still consuming well, that. I, I understand. I mean, like I'm I don't know. I, I'm probably not older than you 
but I come from a blue state. NPR used to be a lot better than it is right now. It used to I don't be a believe lot you. Better. I don't yeah. believe you. <laughs> really? I mean, it might okay, be true, I mean, but yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think this is like the media used to be fair, right? Like, it's just like you might be fondly remembering it because you know, you're a blue uh, state. Okay. Listen to old episodes of Car Talk. Okay. Right? Well, Car and, Talk is fun. I'll give you Car Talk. Yeah. And, and, you know, okay. Look, I really dislike Garrison Keeler, but Perham Companion was a damn good idea. And if there ever is a, well, I think there will be, this is inevitable that there will be a counter-progressive art scene that it already has actually been emerging in blue areas, a counter-progressive art scene, but it's very, very early days. But when this becomes more developed, something like Prairie Home Companion will have to be developed because that is a brilliant idea to recapture the energy of what an early radio show would be and to recreate that. Uh, I've seen several of them live and there's kind of a magic there, even though, you know, I, I have contempt from it because it, it, it mocks the values that it essentially thrives on implicitly. And, and, and so there's always sort of a poison pill in, in the food hidden there, so like a piece of glass hidden in your delicious meal somewhere and you're always looking for it. But I mean, I can't tell you that that's a, that's, that's a piece of culture that you know, we're kind of missing in the American spirit. Fair enough. Here, speaking it's a shame of that uh, progressives had to take it, you know. Uh, speaking of uh, pieces of culture we're missing here today, uh, today, your Warhammer Lessons video got me thinking: Is there a chance of the Trad Codex series returning under the Sunset Stream format? Yeah, that was a great series. Any, any chance that we'll see that picked up? Uh, well, I, I'm kind of choking on the last one that I I recorded half of one before my son was born, and I never returned to that one in the series. So. Uh, uh, that one has to get made first, but I'm I'm just kind of killing myself trying to get the Substack essays out right now. So I'm going to have a lot more time in mid January, and I'm hoping to just get all of this stuff off my stack, so to speak. Uh, so hopefully, I'll have a really productive January in terms of the blog content. But uh, first of all, you know, I have to get around a 50 hour work week that's not blog related, and um, you know this unending series of toddler colds that does slow things down. Uh, yes. Yeah. So someone free Dave from the shackles of, of this, so he can make excellent content here. <laughs> Actually speaking of here, we got a, a good joke, but it's a, a good one here. Bolero three, nine, three for $5. Now that Orin is going to the blaze. Will Dave announce his taking an hour, uh, an hour slot on EWTN <laughs> opening for Raymond Arroyo? Is that how you say that properly? Oh boy. I, I would need to work on uh, Arroyo is how I usually have okay. it pronounced. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, now I don't, I used to watch it uh, and I don't really anymore, uh, but, but I know I really respect the content they produce in ETWN. I really hope it does not get invaded by, uh, you know, it doesn't suffer the same fate as NPR does because that would be a tragedy. But uh, really I, I do want content like that to stay strictly religious and orthodox and the content we produce here is political and you know there's this there's this tendency on the right wing to kind of want to have all their eggs in one basket and we really have to kind of get around it's always like it's this like lifeboat mentality on the right where there's only so many seats and you you all have to get on to the few seats that are remaining uh, how about you just make more seats uh, etwn does theological content 
I don't produce theological content. I am a Roman Catholic who 100% agrees with ETWN uh, that I'm aware of. But that's not the kind of thing I produce. And it shouldn't be in the same basket. And to put it in the same basket would kind of make both of us weaker. And I think that this is true with a lot of things. It's like people wanting Tucker Carlson to run for president, to me, is the perfect example of this. Okay, what you want like a single point of failure for everything. It's like the, the only guy who can produce good media content is also the guy running for president and who can't do it anymore. <laughs> I I guess it kind of represents the desire for a king, but I don't know. I, I think you need to kind of do many different things. And that's that's a lesson we're going to have to learn in the future. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think a lot of people are constantly looking to like different right-wing media figures to like then start this and start that and embody like every, you know, why aren't you writing children's books and why aren't you doing theology content? Why aren't you running for it? Like just all this stuff melts yeah. together. And I think it is really important to have that separate. I think part of it comes from the idea that, you know, the left just kind of blasts its cultural view into like every piece of its entertainment. And for them, like the blending of theology and, you know, whatever politics and what it's all the same. There is no, no division for them at all in, in some ways. But also they are able to still make good you know, entertainment. Well, less so now, but they used to a, have a, the... a lot less so now. Right. And them blasting their political views into the entertainment has definitely driven that process of degeneration. Right. Yep. So maybe not the thing to copy. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, there's uh, really, I think the default should be be to ignore i mean we can't ignore the left we can't ignore the left they're they're the the storm that's raging outside of us but we we can't you can ask how we respond to a leftist tactic and one way to respond to a tactic is to kind of do tit for tat to fire back but we should not just implicitly assume that because the left did something and it worked for them it will work for the right in my experience most of those cases are just not true we can't just do the thing the left I mean, for a lot of different reasons, right? I, I always mention these two, two different reasons. One, they have power. Two, they're trying to push the car down the hill. They're trying to degenerate. So, you know, if you want to melt culture down, uh, put your politics on it. But I'm not trying to do that. And my ideal version of the Prairie Home Companion would actually be about music and about folk life. And about good stories it wouldn't be like i wouldn't launch into a tirade about mench's mole bug in the middle of a story about lake wobegon right that's stupid it would it would, it would be, you know it would though so, so mole bug might launch into a story about lake wobegon and his political tirade so i think he already has yeah but. probably <laughs> so. uh, yeah. all right so our uh, Arden Cobb here for $2. Ted Kaczynski based or cringe intellectually? Yes, to be clear, uh, yeah. very, very cringe in all of his actions. Um, uh, speaking of tactics that don't work. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, yeah. the right. Uh, it's amazing, but Ted Kaczynski basically did the same thing as Bill Ayers, but he didn't end up with tenure. Yeah, right, yes. <laughs> very important. I, believe me, his prose is way better. Than Bill Ayers. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. He's a yeah. way more compelling person than Angela Davis or Bill Ayers, but they basically did the... Well, I guess he was more successful on it, right? Yeah. That's, uh, well, okay. I'm, I don't want to get your channel canceled, but uh, he I is intellectually that. based, in my opinion. I, I think he's a very compelling thinker. 
Yeah, I, I haven't read a ton of Ted Kaczynski. I've read The System's Greatest Trick and, and, and a little more, but not much. But from what I've seen, yeah, it seems like he did he did have a grasp on things that a lot of people don't. You might be able to find those things elsewhere, and you know, but but he uh, did have a, a decent grasp on a lot of things that people talk about today. Let's... Yeah, I think a lot of it's been assimilated into modern right wing thought. So I wouldn't say he's essential. And the question that he asks in sort of the Unabama Manifesto, I, I recognize that as a version of the kind of broad dialectic you experience in like the, the abolition of man by C.S. Lewis. So, you know, that's kind of, you don't need to go to Ted Kaczynski to find this stuff, but it, it is interesting that he was thinking in that way before anyone was explicitly thinking in that way or before a lot of us were thinking in that way. Yeah, I think so. All right, Dreadnought here for $10. I'm always bothering Dave on his streams. He's responsible for me becoming Catholic. But I wanted to say I love your work, Oren. How many signs do you have? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I think I've got like three of my own that I made. And then sometimes I make people some for other people when they have particularly good tweets. So like I made one for, uh, for <coughs> harmless, harmless Yard Dog. Um, and so, so I think there's like four or five out there that I made, but you know, the, the sign tapping meme did exist before me. Um, you know, the, the obviously you know, there are people doing the Carl Schmidt, you know, with the sign tapping meme, uh, that that's kind of where I first saw it, but I guess, you know, mine kind of went wide. And so, uh, that's why I am now the tapper of signs. Uh, but let's see here. Any signs that we need to create for you? Uh, uh, I'm not much of a memer. I got <laughs> back on Twitter recently, mm. but I realized that the uh, the the thing I like doing the most on Twitter is making these completely unwieldy tweet threads, which is the worst use of time, right? Uh, because it's just it's much better to do a Substack essay. Actually, the the 40 lessons from 40k, uh, the most recent video, that was supposed to be a tweet thread, and I just turned it into a video. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's also time. Like it takes way longer to make a Substack in a video for me at least than it does to tweet it out. Yeah, my my experience has been I start the, the the I start the idea in a tweet, and then I expand it when I write a piece, and then the piece becomes the video. You know, so kind of you know, each piece, at each point kind of make it a little larger. You know, deepen the thought that kind of thing. That that's that's been a process that works for me but obviously it's you a little different for everybody there this is one thing you missed not to digress but you don't you i don't think you ever had a youtube channel when youtube videos could explode and yeah, not really or, or yeah like it's always been since you've been here it's always been that live streams do as well as like real videos and that's just the that's a, that's, a, that's almost tragic because my live streams do better than the edited videos that I've like poured actual effort into thinking about, which is strange, right? Yeah, no, it, it is. You, you put your heart and soul into something and you take you hours and hours of writing and cutting yeah. it down and recording and everything. And then like you do a joke stream with somebody for an hour and that gets, you know, 5,000, 10,000 more views. And you're like, all right, well, there, there's a, though I will say my one video that has gone wide that did kind of get a little bit of viralness, it was a edited video. So, oh, so the, okay. one, 
the one video the I I have had that really did that like went over a hundred thousand or whatever views like that that was a edited video and none of my streams have got close so there there is still a chance for those things to get kicked up to the algorithm but I hear you over yeah. over time it does feel like the the streams I think people like to be interaction they like to be involved people like to hear kind of the conversation a little more today yeah videos are mainly just for signposting i you know what you're thinking about like serious ideas and to kind of establish your cred as a person that actually says something you know a lot of these streamers like uh, adam and sitch the way they can get away with their contradictions is that they're never nailed down to any ideas because who's going to search for their positive ideas in a stream that goes on for eight hours? Right. And so they can continuously spin bullshit. Whereas when you say something in a video, you know that that person actually writes down things that they believe in. Like you can, maybe I'll admit I'm wrong. I'm, I made videos saying things that turned out to be wrong. And, and I'll admit that, but at least I'm taking a stand and you can call me on it, right? Yeah, the video essay really is a, a piece of cohesive thought that makes you easier to nail down. And but but if you get it right, it gives you a lot more credibility. So it is you're right that it is kind of that uh, catch twenty two for some people, or that it, there is that that dangerous out there if you if you don't know what you're doing. But it can it can give you some some credibility if you do. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Benji for $5. Now that Oren works for the blaze, is he now a relapse journalist instead of a recovering one? Yeah. Mm. I, I had to take the recovering journalist out of my profile. I've, I've cashed <laughs> in the chip. I've, you know, uh, you know, back I'm off the wagon. No, I, 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 I hope I'm not a journalist, right? Like I'm, I'm an opinion guy, right. At, at, <laughs> at the very least that that's not quite as bad, right. At least I'm honest about, about where my opinions are, but yeah. You're if, an if ontological you... terrorist. <laughs> If you a polemicist, boomers know what I'm talking about with that one, right? Do you know what the reference is? No, not right away. Sorry. Oh, um, it was uh, there was this um, this Hearst daughter, and uh, you know this this uh, newspaper man. She got kidnapped by these communists and brainwashed, and uh, they they re. There was this famous Patty Hearst was her name, and when they recaptured her, like as a terrorist. Uh, she she said that she was an ontological terrorist was her new profession. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It's, uh, this is boomer <laughs> trivia. If you ever in Trivial Pursuit, that might come up. I'm prepared. Well, if you ever played Trivial Pursuit, you are a boomer, right? Like, at <laughs> come this on. Point. No, no. I, it's, we're the same age. I I, yeah. I played a lot of Trivial Pursuit. I'm just saying all the all all the zoomers are on here are like, okay, old man. Like, that's yeah. fascinating. All right. Uh, Dread not here for $5 again. Thank you very much. I think streams have become so popular because uh, we are so much more isolated and disconnected from each other these days. Yeah, that's definitely too true, right? Like uh, true as well. Like the the isolation of COVID and the, just the want for, you know, feeling like you have friends, feeling like you're part of a social situation. And then I, I feel like so much of the world is still recovering from COVID. So much of our... Um, <coughs> Uh, so, so much of our lives is still our social lives is still catching up with that, uh, that, yeah, I think you're right that people have, it gives people a way to can feel like they're connecting that they otherwise wouldn't have with just a random video essay. Yeah. I mean, the, the COVID was when you saw streams overtake videos, that's just flat mm. out and it happened to correspond with my hiatus. So it was, you know, it was a end of an era, certainly. And, uh, you know, this is actually the, one of the ways the right has to get power immediately is just to beat the left on the line coming back from COVID. 
is just to get get out there and get socializing and get into the real world as as fast as possible. Uh, this is why I've been such an advocate for the basket weaving pro. Uh, and I'll take a it, guys. Uh, you go to my blog or don't if you're interested. But if there's one thing I want to really promote in on this stream while I have your audience, check out the project of basket weaving, meeting with other people and and finding allies in your locality. This is something that I wish I could do more of, and it is absolutely the sign that that green shoots are forming. If you can meet in your locality with people who agree with you, it will also basically pilot something that we've been looking for for a long time, which are real-life communities forming embryonically online and then becoming real. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's not my immediate locality, but I was lucky enough to, we were, my uh, wife and I were in the UK a, a few weeks ago and we got to meet up with an uh, academic agent and, and oh. uh, Poe and, and a few other uh, people in real life. So that was great. You really, it is great to finally kind of make contact with everyone. Um, great. So I highly suggest it. All right. And we missed one here real quick. Uh, 99 Iron Duke. Uh, says Dave as a mod on your channel. How do you get you on a guest on my YouTube channel? The Duke here uh, submits his request. Uh, just ask me. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I, I would have uh, ninety nine Iron Duke. I I, I think I kind of know you have a YouTube channel. I'd absolutely love to come on. And you know, longtime friend of the channels, I always want to promote, and also a mutual friend of the inspiration for my channel, the Franklin. Uh, who used to blog under a different name who I won't mention here. But uh, yeah, absolutely. The only problem is, is that Twitter for me really was more of a Rolodex for... So if you DM me on Twitter, I'll get back to you the fastest. That's the fastest way to, to contact me. Email is the slowest. I have a very difficult time answering emails uh, because oftentimes people write me essays and it's very hard to know how to appropriately respond to that. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining us. Had lots of great questions and a great crowd out tonight. Want to remind you again, if it's your first time here, to go ahead and subscribe to the channel. And again, if you'd like to enjoy this as a podcast, you can go to all the major podcast platforms. You can subscribe to the Oren McIntyre show there. And you'll, uh, if you could leave the rating and the review, really appreciate it. I should have a new piece coming out in on the Blaze tomorrow. And I also recently did an appearance. I was on the Jesse Kelly show. Uh, I was on with Ali Beth Stuckey, and I was on with uh, Seamus Coglin uh, from Freedom Tunes. So if you want to check those out, you can find me in those places as well. But Really appreciate you guys all for coming by. Appreciate the distributist. Always a great guest. And as always, guys, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.